Hi, and welcome to Biotalk. My name is Andy Meyerson, Managing Director at Locust Walk, and you're listening to Biotalk, our podcast for biotech dealmakers. Today, we wanted to focus on biotech platform companies. In our view, a quote-unquote platform is a process or technology that enables a research team to conceive and advance a range of pharmaceutical products for further clinical development. There's an old adage that is especially true in today's challenging financing environment that a platform is only as good as the asset it creates. A company may be valued early in their corporate life on the capabilities of a platform, but eventually it all comes down to the success of the assets that are generated by the platform. But a rule is also meant to have exceptions, and today we're going to speak to an exception. I get to sit down with Jason Kelly, the co-founder and CEO of Ginkgo Bioworks, which is a unique platform company that doesn't actually have its own pipeline. Ginkgo specializes in using genetic engineering to produce bacteria with industrial applications for other biotech companies, saving other companies the cost of reproducing the initial stages of design in synthetic biology. In short, Ginkgo provides a wide swath of capabilities to help companies across therapeutics, vaccines, agriculture, nutrition, wellness, and other areas to accelerate and advance their own development. Welcome to Biotech, Jason. Thanks, Andy. Happy to be on. Let's dive in. So to start, I always like to ask our guests what spurred their interest in biotech. So Jason, what attracted you to our industry that made you want to become a biotech entrepreneur? Well, uh, so I remember when I, so I did my undergrad at MIT. Uh, there wasn't a bioengineering major at the time. So I did like chemi and bio because I knew I really wanted to be a genetic engineer. And so I, I was, I was sort of reflecting like, why did I, because I distinctly remember like flipping through the course book, looking for the genetic engineering classes, uh, coming out of high school. And I'm, I'm almost a hundred percent certain it is just because of Jurassic Park. Right. I, I think like that, that is, that is the actual origin. I was like, you know, I don't know, 13 years old or 14 years old when that came out. I, I used to love all those Crichton books. Uh, and you know, and, and so, and, and I think that movie was just this like magical combination of technology uh that what was like the current cutting edge at the time when that book was written like you know it was in the realm of the possible uh and then like highlighting just the wonder of biology right like biology as a substrate like what it's capable of um and obviously in that sense instantiated with you know brontosauruses and t-rexes but like you know man it's powerful stuff and, and so uh, i i was just drawn to it um and then and then everything was kind of downstream from that I'm I'm laughing partly because I've I've been to your offices over in the seaport and the connection <laughs> to the Jurassic Park makes total sense now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, uh, the, the, yes, we are. Uh, yeah, we are we are big fans. Yep. <laughs> uh, so for anybody who hasn't actually been to Ginkgo's facilities, there are dinosaurs all over the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have about yeah we're down. Um, you know, for the listeners, we're down we're down in uh, seaport, uh, about three hundred thousand square feet of. Kind of highly automated labs down here and we do love to give tours so yeah if you want to come by and see the dinosaurs and the robots please do no that's that's seaport in boston by the way yeah um so while in graduate school at mit you founded open wetware oh, yeah work. yeah uh which according to the website was intended to help promote sharing of information know-how wisdom among researchers groups for working in biology and, and biological engineering and so i guess was this your first entrepreneurial foray? And if so, what made you want to start this company? Yeah, I mean, so so OpenWetWork is kind of cool. It's a funny story because it was actually the first time the the ultimately, ultimately became the founding team of Ginkgo kind of worked together on something like that. And we actually, we, there are other people involved too, but it was it was an interesting experience. It was actually not a company. Uh, it was a, um, 
we applied for a grant and uh, my thesis advisor at the time was foolish enough to allow his grad students to apply for an NSF grant. We won this million dollar NSF grant to basically launch a, a website for like like protocol sharing. Think of it like a Wikipedia for scientific protocols. Uh, it, it's still up actually. Like people, you know, it's pretty interesting, but um, uh, it was it was really more about, I, I would say it's a common theme even coming up in, back into Ginkgo, which was we felt that a lot of the uh, information needed to make the engineering of biology easier and faster was sort of siloed, in, in this case, across many different labs. But now as I've, we've got, you know, gotten into the commercial sector, I see it across many different companies mm -hmm. uh, and that that was a fundamentally a slowdown uh, on the research progress. And so Open Wetware was an attempt to do that on the on the academic side. And Ginkgo is a bit of an attempt to uh, break down those barriers on the commercial side. Yeah, that actually preempts a little bit my next question, which was. <laughs> Usually for entrepreneurs, arriving on the idea if their company is iterative and you kind of have to learn and explore and really think through what the right way to come together is, especially since it sounds like so much of Open Wetware was the same people that you started Ginkgo with. What was sort of the iterative process that aligned into giving you the idea for Ginkgo? Why start this company? Yeah, so, so you know, the, the founding team, we were kind of a funny startup at least especially at the time uh so we had we started it right out of grad school uh so there was four of us that were doing grad school together at mit um bioengineering department back in 2008 uh, uh along with a professor from mit this fellow tom knight and hey that was like not a great time to, to start coming i think it was when locust walk got started also that was, a, that was a tough uh a tough market environment we were straight out of school which is not typically funded by biotech vc and and uh uh, we weren't developing therapeutics. We were trying to be a platform, which is also can be weird. Uh, and so, so we actually bootstrapped for a while. We had a, we kind of a funny start to the company, um, which I can talk more about. But but that founding team, um, you know, really we were inspired by uh, Tom Knight, who was who was the founder, who uh, was an MIT professor uh, at the time, and he was in the electrical engineering computer science department at MIT. So not not biology. Uh, starting, I think he joined the faculty in 1972. So this is like mainframe era computing, right? Like computers the size of a room, yeah. Tom programmed, right? Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, like the whole thing, right? I have this great black and white photo of him with his master's thesis, which was a refrigerator sized mini computer. All right, you know, and so, you know, Tom caught the semiconductor design course for many years at MIT, you know, early ARPANET stuff, died in the wall electrical engineer, mid 1990s, he decides, you know, forget computers, the interesting thing to program in the future is gonna be cells. And the core insight was, hey, look, DNA is is digital code. Uh, you know, you could read it with sequencing, write it with DNA synthesis. And if you're reading and writing code, Tom saw it as programming. Mm -hmm. And so to his credit, and this is really a lot of like the origins of, of Ginkgo and the theory, you know, he started taking undergraduate biology lab classes in his 40s. He set up a wet lab in the MIT computer science building, started scaring all of his colleagues, growing bacteria and, and get, you know, and, and but he came to to biotechnology uh, and, and molecular biology with just a very different mindset mm -hmm. than what was happening in the biology department. Got and it. and so, he, you know, he brought in a lot of ideas from computer science, electrical engineering, and we were surrounded by a good crowd at that time. You know, Drew Endy, Pam Silver at Harvard was like basically the only biologist that would tolerate like a bunch of idiot engineers that were coming in and saying, you know, I think we'll be able to, you know, put logic into cells and, and like the biology, the, like the, the, the down the middle biologists were like, you all are idiots. Uh, and, and so, uh, but Pam like tolerated us and taught us good systems biology. Good, and, and, and so, you know, some of those ideas, you know, have made headway on the academic side, like things like logic, but they, 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 they proved hard to scale. 
Um, but Tom did have one idea, um, uh, which I'll, I'll talk about now because I think it's, it's useful to understand the whole shebang here, uh, which is uh, called abstraction. Okay, so in Tom's era of being a computer scientist, if you wanted to program a computer in the 1970s, you needed to be an electrical engineer. Mm -hmm. Because how do you program a computer if you don't know how a computer works? Right. Like that, that seems obvious, right? I mean, like, how could you possibly? And now, you know, that like, you know, if your kid has ever taken a scratch programming class, you know, you, you can, a 10 year old can draw little boxes around on an iPad and program a computer. Well, the reason that's possible is we abstracted away sort of the electrical engineering from the programming. We put in place assembly language and operating systems and programming languages on top of that. And then graphical programming languages. Now ChatGPT, you can just talk to a computer in English and program it. Right. And, and, Tom gets into biological engineering and to biotechnology and he says, in order to program a cell, to write DNA code, to make it do something new, the first thing you have to learn to do is pick up a pipette. Because how can you program a cell if you don't know how to do molecular biology experiments? Mm -hmm. And he's like, these are two different disciplines. All right. They are as different as electrical engineering and software engineering. They are very different. Compu the molecular biology lab work is fundamentally an advanced manufacturing discipline. It's about moving physical materials in precise ways and precise combinations with high quality. And the DNA programming is biology. It is like understanding the biology of the cell, understanding the design of DNA. It is, and both of them are very important, very deep disciplines that are totally different. Yeah. And they need and they need to be abstracted away from each other. The same person should not be doing both. And and that turned out to be a very scalable idea. So the, so the foundation of Ginkgo is that. So we split those two apart. We can talk more about the technology, but our yeah. scientists here, they don't go in the lab. They order things from our automated foundries uh, to do their work. And that that turned out to be the key idea that led to the founding of Ginkgo. Uh, and 15 years later, we're finally seeing the uh, some of the big payoffs from that. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And it's so interesting. I guess part of it makes sense to me because, you know, as we were catching up earlier, my background is biomedical and electrical engineering. So it actually is yeah. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. And when I was in the lab, I was having to do both. And now suddenly it's like, oh, you separate it. Like, what a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it makes it and it just allows people to it allows you to, to develop more maturity along the axis yeah. of each. Right. Like that's the big difference. Right. It really is. And and I think the lab side of things is severely underinvested in. Right. Like like it, it's um it's it's kind of it's it, it has not become its own discipline. I mean, it has a places like Ginkgo, but but it is not it, it is not in, in the average kind of biotechnology R&D setting. Well, I guess like, maybe... you know, you know, there's not there's not substantial work put in to make your mini prep 30 percent more efficient or 50% cheaper, right? Like like that's looked at as like a job for sort of a, a lab kit company or something like that. And I tell you what, they're not investing much in that, you know? And, and so you've got, you've got no one really building out a deep discipline on driving scale, you know, exponential improvements in scale and the fundamental underlying lab work. There's rare exceptions like genomics, mm -hmm. but um, when it comes to broad genetic engineering technology, it's just not there. So, Let's talk about your business model then, because that actually is a direct result of exactly what you're talking about right now. Ginkgo is pursuing a business model that is atypical for a biotech, where you do not have any of your own development candidates that are advancing into the clinic. What Correct. made you decide to pursue this path versus developing your own drugs? Yeah, so, so the big reason is we, again, started with this origin of looking at 
DNA as code and thinking of it as kind of like more of a programming problem. And so then you go look in the software industry and you say, what are the big companies in the software industry? What are the trillion dollar companies in the software industry have in common? They're all horizontal platforms. Okay. Amazon Web Services, Windows, OS, you know, YouTube, they, you know, they, these things are, you know, social networks, like, like you have these things that cut across, okay, many, many different domains, all right, and it is the horizontal ones that are able to, to build these like truly big companies that enable many other people's applications. And so, you know, we looked at it and we said, okay, well, can we do that? Can we make it easier and faster can we create all that value that an operating system did for all the app developers on pcs back in the day when they regular you know when microsoft basically regularized the interface to 50 different computer manufacturers so that you could write software once for windows instead of 50 times and amazon web services made it so that you didn't have to spend five million dollars on a server farm to launch your website you could spend a hundred thousand dollars in a coffee shop and and so those types of big value adds are enabled by horizontal platforms in software environments. And so we said, is there an opportunity to do something like that around programming DNA? Mm -hmm. And and so that was so the origin was because that felt natural given our orientation. And we were not like just to be clear, Andy, like we were not therapeutics developers, right? Like like we I did not have an opinion. I think I think therapeutics are great, right? But I we didn't have a certain opinion about oh this is the right next drug to treat this disease. Mm -hmm. uh, we were excited to help other people do that. Um, and in fact, we didn't even start in therapeutics, right? So a lot of the confusion about Ginkgo, you know, now today, you know, we've announced deals in the last, you know, year or so with, you know, Merck, uh, with Nova Nordisk, uh, Boehringer Ingelheim, we just announced a deal with Biogen, right? Like yeah. we have a lot of pharma customers. We work in, in T cells. We were, you know, we're, we're working all these mammalian cells too, but where we started was engineering yeast, uh, like you would use in beer brewing, like for a ferment, for industrial fermentation in the fragrance industry. Okay. Uh, okay. To, to basically engineer it to produce like natural products that you would extract from a plant. Uh, and so actually the origin of the company was where can we get people to outsource R&D to us onto our automated platforms so they get more leverage out of it. And that was, you know, circa eight, nine years ago, easier for us to pull off in the fragrance industry than the pharma industry. And if you think of yourself as a service provider, it's easier to understand why the fragrance industry is not as good at biotech as Nova Nordisk is. And so if you are, are asking someone to, hey, outsource to your infrastructure, they're, of course, going to compare it to their internal infrastructure. Yep. Uh, and, and so that's actually why we started outside of therapeutics was because it was an easier place to get the ball rolling on signing people up for the platform. And then what's happened in the intervening, you know, 10 years, you know, two and a half billion dollars of fundraising later and all the scale uh, is now we are competitive with the in-house infrastructure in the biopharma industry. And we can offer their scientists a scale that um, would be bigger than what they could do uh, just with their own hands and, and they want access to that, which is great. Um, but that's been a journey, right? Mm -hmm. Like we had, we had to get to a certain size for that to really be credible. So as a service provider, fundamentally, that seems to make me more like a contact research organization versus 100%. A, a traditional biotech. And yeah. so do you, I mean, I know you said 100%, do you view yourself as a CRO or how do you differentiate <laughs> between the two in your mind? Yeah, so the biopharma industry is funny, right? Like everyone gives me a hard time if like I call, I'm like, oh, don't call Giga a CRO. Like CROs are valuable or something, right? And I'm like, again, like Amazon Web 
services. Okay. Right. Like services is in the name. It's a trillion dollar yeah. company, right? Like, like service businesses can be valuable. They just have to create a lot of value. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. And so, so part of the reason CROs get a bad rap today, again, and CROs do important things for the industry, right? But they, they haven't been considered a font of like innovation, right? Like you look to them as a place that you're going to outsource a animal study to, or you look to them as a place that'll, you know, do some med chem for you, right? If it's Wuxi or, you know, right? Like, and so there's this kind of like well-boxed thing that you can do. And it's mostly because you don't want to do it. Okay. Right. You're like, they can do it slightly more efficiently and I don't really want to carry this load and I'll outsource it. All right. Kinko, similar business model, like we are saying outsource your R&D service to us, but it's not stuff you don't want to do. It's stuff that you can't do. In other words, we can run it at a scale that unless you want to invest, you know, we've invested close to half a billion dollars in this automated infrastructure here in Boston. Unless you want to make a similar scale investment, you won't have the scale we have, right? So you won't be able to generate as much data as we have. Um, and then over time, we could talk more about this too, back to that open wetware and siloing problem. Yeah. We've also been starting to accumulate what we would consider like tooling IP. Okay. So, you know, we acquired Stride Bio, which is like really great, you know, capsid technology with good data and non-human primates, you know, around like tropism of, of AV capsids. Like once Kiko buys that, it's available, right? So anyone who wants to use that going to my pipeline, right? So, you know, if you're interested, you're an AV company and you want to take a look at those, like they're right here on a menu, right? So, so we're also, you know, that also becomes a second asset that is, hey, it's not something you have, it's something you want to have, and it's available via the service. Mm -hmm. um, we we want to be more like that, right? Um, we're really not trying to replace things that you could do yourself. We want to be uh, an innovative. But in the industry, at least there is a concept of outsourcing mm -hmm. uh, to services, and, and yeah, CROs would, would be the closest thing. So you spend a lot of time talking about horizontal, I'll use the word breadth, right? Because you want yeah. to be in a lot of different areas, be able to help in a lot of different ways. And you, you hinted at this, but what does it actually mean in terms of what does scale mean to you? What like drives Ginkgo's growth? If it's not valued on development candidates like other biotechs or anything else, is it just having more yeah. platforms? How does how does that actually work? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Very good question. Right. So so I'll give you two answers. One from like how because I do think, you know, for the folks on the call that are you know, the venture industry or or starting companies or things like that and thinking about how companies are valued in the industry, I'll, I'll give you like the investor filter and then I'll give you like the customer filter, right? So from the in investor filter, it, it, it's about new partnerships, new programs, right? So are, are we signing up customers, getting them on the platform? And then with a single customer, are we able to add multiple programs? So we have, you know, nearly 100 uh, active R&D programs running on the platform. And so we publish all those numbers, right? Like here's how many we have, here's how many we started this quarter, here's which ones ended and all this stuff, right? Like that, that's what folks are watching. And then they're also just watching revenue come in. Um, but just to note on the business model, we make money two ways. One is we'll charge fees, uh, similar to traditional CRO during the course of the R&D. And then this gets us a little more closer to like an early stage biotech. If successful, we would have some type of downstream economics. So it could be, you know, your traditional kind of milestone bio books deals that you see, uh, it could be a royalty. It's a small company, we'll, we'll take equity. Uh, you know, there's different ways you can do it, but we want to have some reach into the end product, not nearly like what you would see if it was a small company having a, an asset acquired for the rights in, in Asia. Okay. Right. Like, like this, cause it, cause that's, those deal dynamics are driven by small company, precious bobble, get as much as you can for it through a bidding war. Yeah. 
Yep. I want to be Amazon Web Services for biotech. I want to have a very small piece of thousands of pies. So, so our deal dynamics would look nothing like that. Much smaller, um, but many more deals. Um, okay. th does that make does that make sense on the on the investor slice? It, it, it does. You've essentially built out an asset portfolio based off of modest economics across the board in a wide area of things that chances are just basic biological research and advancement says that some of them are going to be successful as additional sources of revenue on top of your baseline level of of um, service fees, service fees. Yeah, bingo. And, and and it's very similar if you know uh, companies like Atom App. So in the antibody space, like Atom Apps have this business model forever, Epseller, yep. uh, places like that, that yep. the, you know, some of those then flirt with having their own pipeline. Atom has been good about not doing that. Uh, we don't have a pipeline. Um, and so we are just pure play like that. So that's another, that would be a little closer than, uh, I don't know, I doubt Adam Matt would want to call themselves a CRO either, but like, uh, you know, it's that, it's that business model, um, yeah. just yeah. across, except for us, it's any genetic engineering, okay. right? Like whatever you want engineers to do, you know, in the ag industry, um, Corteva, Syngenta, and then our largest customer there is Bayer, all customers of ours, right? So we also do work and, that, and that's around biologics and ag. So, uh, although the Syngenta deal is a trade deal, um, but mostly it's around like microbial, uh, microbes engineered in ag, um, but it, that's kind of our box. And it, and species doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I want to be clear about that. Um, you know, in the last five years, uh, the fastest growing area for us has been our mammalian work. Um, and so we are doing a lot more um, in that space and work on IPSC cells and T cells and CHO cells. And, you know, um, and so that uh, uh, that's our box, if that makes sense. And so from the customer side, what they're interested in is, do you work in the species I care about? Have you worked on similar problems to what I care about? Mm -hmm. Okay, right? Like they're trying to evaluate, are you good at the kind of thing that that I am currently working on, uh, Jason? And do you have like some proof of that? Can you show me some data? And so that that's the customer breath angle. And we increasingly have more of that, right? Like we have, we presented you know, the uh, CITSI meeting in Boston, like really cool data on our CAR-T work. Uh, you know, we've now done deal, you know, our Boehringer deal is on like small molecule, yep. uh, natural products for undruggable targets. Uh, you know, we've worked on pro programs in gene therapy with Biogen. And so we're starting to keep microbiome with Synlogic. That's in a phase three trial. Like we, we have like things that are piling up. Yeah. Um, but that's what customers want to see. Like they really are like, want to see that you've done something similar. It, it's funny because you mentioned the word customer and this may be sort of obvious to you, but within biotech, it's actually a pretty challenging thing to help a company understand who their customer actually is, right? Because is it the yeah. patient? Is it the prescribing physician? Is it the payer? Is it the acquirer? Is it your investors? Who are you actually building the company for? Who is your customer? Who actually is your customer? So our customer is basically the research group of a biotech company, right? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, Marcus Schindler is the CSO at Nova Nordisk. We have a big deal with them, right? Like that's a customer, right? Like, like, like someone who wants to, because we're all preclinical. Yep. We don't do any, we're not any clinical work. We don't do any manufacturing. Okay. So someone who is trying to improve the assets in their pipeline, develop new assets in their pipeline, and wants to have access to either some of our IP or some of our automation, but in almost all cases, the combination of the two uh, against their problem. Uh, and that that is our customer 100%. It is, it is the R&D budgets. Got it. Now we me. focus on biotech, uh, but Ginkgo really does a lot more than pharmaceutical discovery. And I know we already talked about what made you start in fragrances versus going straight into to biotech. Uh, but what is sort of the thought process that goes into some of these orthogonal areas? And is the diversification actually key 
to the business model in a lot of respects. It allows to shield you from some of the issues other biotechs are experiencing as we see a shift away from potential biotech investment. Yeah. So, so, so the the first thing to say is like the therapeutics industry is is the best, you know, kind of customer area for us, just because the research budgets are the biggest. The customers are the most sophisticated, right? So we can have like a rational scientific conversation about our capabilities with a person with a budget for our services. Yeah. Um, in some of these other areas, we're often like bringing biotech in. So first, we're convincing the head of R&D at a fragrance company that biotech might be useful here. It's not just about organic chemistry, which has been like the history of that industry. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's a little bit like 1985 in the pharma industry for biotech in fragrances or like, you know, five years ago. Does that make sense? And so, so it's a little bit of a different conversation. They're both interesting, but but they're just different. And so, so I'm really excited about therapeutics. I think we can move fast there. It's why we've been, you know, like seeing so many new programs, you know, again, whether it's mRNA or on the microbiome or gene or cell therapy, like we, we can have really rational conversations quickly with customers and get them on platform. Um, so uh, that said, I do think like, I've been reading a lot about the electronics industry. Uh, this is a really good book. Uh, it's called, uh, here, I'll show you it. It's called Fabulous. Okay, the transformation of the semiconductor industry. It is a very wonky book. Okay, uh, it's written like ten years ago, and it's basically about the history of what's called Fabulous semiconductor companies, yep. which which is like a company that is developing an electronics product but does not have a fab. Okay, and now everybody has heard of this because of all the stuff with China, but there's a company called TSMC in Taiwan that really pioneered this idea. You know, they launched in 1987 and they were like, we are going to be a foundry and we will take orders and you will no longer have to have an integrated manufacturing operation. This is for manufacturing, but by analogy. Uh, okay, in order for you to develop a system, like an end electronic system, you will handle the backside, but you'll, and we'll give you tools to help design and interface with our stuff and all this. Okay. Mm -hmm. I want labless, okay? Labless pharmaceutical companies, labless ag biotech companies, okay? Labless fragrance biotech companies, labless cosmetic biotech companies, labless building materials biotech companies, okay? Right? Like go down the list. There are all these markets that could be biotech, and the actual barrier to entry for many of them is that they don't even know the technology, they don't have the labs. And then in the pharma industry, I would say a lot of the reason the startups are so expensive is it's like pre-AWS software companies back when you had to build your own servers or pre-TSMC integrated circuit companies back when you had to build your own foundry. It's so damn expensive to get a lab in Kendall Square and all this overpriced equipment from Thermo and set up. And what you really should do is just be labless. And, and so that's the... You know, that's the big vision. And I think the total market for biotechnology just as an application area, I mean, in 1950s in electronics, the there were two consumer electronics products effectively, radios and TVs. Yep. That was it. Okay. And TVs weren't even international. The radios were international. The TVs were mostly in the US. Like, like, like it just, it was so expensive. And along comes Moore's Law, planar semiconductor manufacturing, centralization of fabs, and suddenly like everything is an electronics product, right? That that is the potential of biotechnology, right? It is programmable substrate, very powerful. Like back to that Jurassic Park, right? Man, biology can do magical stuff, and we use it to do like two pieces of the economy, mm -hmm. right? It does half of our drugs, and it plays like an edge role in offsetting some there are some um, agricultural inputs uh, with the GM crops, and then it does like 
laundry detergents. Okay. <laughs> Cold water laundry detergent enzymes. Yeah. And like, that's where we're at. Okay. It is like TVs yeah. and radios. And, and if you could really bring the cost down on all this stuff and, and dramatically improve our ability to program biology, I think it will dwarf electronics in terms of the range of applications biotech will pull off. So, I mean, but it's going to start with pharma, right? Like, like the, the good thing is like all of this, like tooling, like what, like the market to drive the tooling, the beautiful, the lucky thing we have is we do have this huge, like just very functional research uh, market in, yeah. in therapeutics. And by the way, like I, I live in the world of hard, hard technology. Like, you know, we did Y Combinator, like Sam Altman had just taken over president of YC, like, you know, famous open AI Sam. And yeah. he wanted to do not just software companies for YC, but also nuclear companies, biotech, all this stuff, right? And so there's all these weird companies in our batch, uh, yeah. Helion Fusion, no, nowhere other than therapeutics is there money to go after this has a 10% chance of success and costs $400 million to try research budgets like that <laughs> kind of stuff is what a system. And, and so, so we, so it's really good. Like there is like the money to be spent. And, yeah. and I think if tooling really leans into it, we can get breakthroughs on the tooling that are similar to what happened with planar semiconductor manufacturing. And then that'll crack open markets outside of biotech. I'm uh, sorry, outside of therapeutics. Does, does that make sense, Andy? It, it, it does. And I mean, it, you you touched on this a little bit, but I mean, I, I opened up the podcast with the idea of, okay, what is a traditional platform company within within biotech, right? And they're advancing assets, they're designing, creating, discovering assets, and then advancing them into the clinic to try to get it through clinical trials and then get to ultimately patients at some point. What do you think about these other platform companies? Like you touched about this a little bit, but like the yeah. more traditional biotech business model truly how disruptive do you actually become to that model and what is it really that as you replace it those companies will start doing given that they need to go to get their own investors in order to carry forward the oh, yeah. ideas for discovering new things but how do they convince somebody to do it if you're just gonna be doing it for them yeah so very good question right so so a, a couple things to, to flag so i would say the the platform businesses in therapeutics today tend to really be like it's a pretty narrow, right? Like they have a certain idea for a thing and it could lead to 10 more drugs like that. Okay. Um, Gigo's trying to do a different story, right? Like I'm trying to make you labless. Okay. Right. Like, so, so I'm really trying to do a much broader bucket of activities. All right. Um, and so I think what those platform companies are often trying to do is saying, we'll be the only ones who develop mRNA therapies or we'll be the only ones who develop, you know, whatever. Right. Um, you know, T cell, you know, right. Like, like CAR T, like whatever it is. Okay. Right. They want to dominate that modality. I want to basically say with this infrastructure, the odds of success across every drug in this modality goes up. Okay. Okay. And the cost of the preclinical research across all modalities goes down 50%. Right. And, and I want, and then as a result, the theory would be people are still going to be happy, you know, like people will pay for therapeutics. Like, and I get it. I know the RA and everything else, but like, this is one of the things that human beings want to pay money for, okay? And if you can then reduce the cost of development and improve odds of success, you'll just get way more, more companies, more drugs, more capital, right? Yeah. Like we will feel more like the tech industry, right? Like what, like, like think of the rate of apps that are developed and all that, like part of the magic is it's low cost, it's fast, odds of success are higher and, and they, but they, and there's a, and there's a, a good size demand on the backside. I, I think that, you know, it, success looks like that, right? 
it, it's more startups. It's better returns for the venture capitalists, right? Like, you know, and, and so that's what we're trying to enable. And, and again, because we have no pipeline, I'm not trying to compete with anybody. I'm, I'm really trying to give the like picks and shovels that are the best out to everyone. Um, and, and by the way, we are starting to make investments, Annie. Like, you know, we ended last quarter at 1.2 billion of cash. I don't spend that on my pipeline. I have no pipeline. So I'm not spending that on clinical trials. I'm not spending that on you know, taste tests for animal-free meat burgers. I'm not spending it on field trials for agriculture. My customers are all doing that. Yeah. I literally spend all that money on robots, on key, on intellectual property, like the Stride stuff for Circular, Circular RNA tech we brought in, and on developing newer and better in, internal protocols to drive our 100 R&D projects in the next, you know, we want to add 100 this year. Like, like, the, like yeah. that's all I spend on. So, so my budget for like tooling, is bigger now, I think, than pretty much anybody single company in the industries would be. And that that's when like that's why platforms are a good thing, right? Because you shouldn't have to be an expert in flexible liquid handling if you were developing drugs. You do not need to be an expert in droplet-based microfluidics. Like that is an absurdity. Okay. Right. You know, I can be expert in that and you can benefit. So to move back to the AWS example, you don't need to have your own cloud service. I got that covered. <laughs> yeah, like and 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 look at how I mean, man, what a line of technology that was. I mean, all the way back to like yeah. make your own chips. Like, you know, like 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 it turned yeah. out that once you had dedicated cloud, you could really drop the cost of compute. Yep. Right. Once and and that was never going to happen at any like small scale company, right? And there's yeah. a few ex exceptions, right? If you're Facebook, there's a few places that have enough demand to really justify their own. But pretty much everyone else yeah. is just getting raw value benefit from AWS, right? And that and that's what we're trying to pull off. Got it. So maybe in the last part of our, our conversation, just to turn a little bit to the state of the industry and challenges and opportunities. Yep. So biotech in general has had a pretty strong roller coaster ride over the last three years massive yep. high during covid as we were seen as the saviors of the world and then now we're going through we're the saviors by the way the uh, this is this is like a problem <laughs> this is another thing that makes me crazy about the difference between like the tech world and like right. the biotech like literally <laughs> during covid you know mark andreessen Andreessen puts up a blog post that is like tech save the world right like because of like zoom you know right like 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 there's no fear of taking credit in silicon valley but like man boston biotech everybody yeah you know, i'm like hello between like moderna and then thermo fisher making all the COVID tests like right like within a you know whatever 100 mile right. radius like these are the people that actually save the world and like exactly you know, exactly yeah, yeah. So, so feel free to please brag about it <laughs> big yeah. hype of covid now we're going through this awful trough and it's not totally sure how long it's really going to last if people moved away from from high-risk industries like biotech, uh, probably macro-driven, doesn't matter. How has the biotech market downturn actually had an impact on your business in general? Yeah. Then I got to follow up to that one. Yeah. So pros and cons. Like so. So I think Giga's in a weird spot because we're so early in penetrating these research budgets, right? So if you're like someone who sells, you know, if you're like a like a Charles River, like your CRO that's like already in with everybody, has relationships, and they cut their research budgets, you're you go down. But I, you know, I'm, I'm barely like half the people on this probably, probably never even heard of Ginkgo Bioworks, right? Like, like, like we're early in our penetration into the therapeutics industry. And so I'm less constrained by your total R&D budget and more constrained by whether you give me a call. Okay. Um, and, and so then what, now, so then that brings you to the next question. Why do you, why do customers give us a call? Like, why do people try it? And is that helped or hurt by this industry so one of the things that i find really frustrating about startup companies in biotech is there's sort of this like 
sine curve of R&D spending, where prior to having a clinical candidate, you would like to spend a ton of money on R&D. You want to have as fast as possible. You're in a race with other people. You want to have the best candidate you can to have the highest odds of success. You're like, spend, 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 spend. Now you hit the clinic yep. and you're like, boy, I would like to not be spending on R&D, <laughs> right? Because you have like a certain amount of money and you need to get through yeah. the clot trials and the investors are all trying to read the tea leaves on if you're going to need to raise again before the next milestone and you're yep. freaking out, right? And, and, and like, you want to conserve that money for the clinical trials. Then you have a good result and you're like, boy, I'd like to have a lot of R&D spending again for to move my other pipeline candidates. So it looks like this, right? Like up, down, up. Well, you hire an R&D department and that's a straight line. Yep. So at the beginning, it's less than you'd like. And during the clinical trials, it's more which yep. in a rich environment is fine. Then at that point, you kind of have them work on some pipeline stuff. But in a tight environment, you know what happens? They fire the R&D department. They do. Okay. And so that is not efficient. Okay. That is like not a good way to run the industry. A better way to do it would have scientists be able to draw on flexible um, uh, um, services that are able to be up when they need to be up and down when they need to be down. In other words, variable, turn that fixed cost into a variable cost. And yep. so that is driving demand for us because we have people saying, okay, I see, I, I, I won't need to like hire and fire an R&D department. I can have, I can, I can add my demand when I need it and, and not when I don't. Um, and then also if they haven't built out a lab, in other words, like a new startup in this environment, they can save all the CapEx. So yeah. if they just start on us, they also don't need to raise as much money in a tight market for raising money because they save on the lab space in Kendall Square and they save on the equipment. Um, yeah. So those are driving people in. The, the reduction in R&D dollars at the big customers is sort of, I'd say, slightly net negative, but not as big of a deal because we're so so lightly penetrated. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, and then everybody always wants to go fast. But that, that's just as true in this market as before. And that's another advantage of a service as you can... Yeah. turn it on the first day like we have we had a uh, cosmetics company called archaea starting our platform um we do like a big annual meeting called gigo ferment in boston so the jasmine the ceo talked two years ago she's like we launched this company and then three months ago at our event or whatever yeah three months ago at our event she's like we just launched our first product year and a half okay right like now it's cosmetics not yeah. therapeutics i get it but like she would have spent a year building a lab, you know, right? Like, like, and the only reason that happened was because like a week after she founded the company, she was generating high throughput data from our infrastructure, right? Yeah. Um. So, so those are the, so I'd say in a tight market, favors a little bit, the small companies giving us a call. So we, we talked about, I mean, you mentioned the beginning, Kinko started 15 years ago. Locust Walk conveniently started 15 years ago, which I'll do the math for everybody. It was 2008, which was yeah. the, the depths of the, the financial crisis. Um, at Locust Walk, we are firm believers that dislocations are a great way to spot opportunity. And so outside of this, the customer needs, what would you say the kinds of opportunities that are revealing themselves to you now as the industry goes through a struggle that you can potentially be in a position to not take advantage of, but be able to do things that maybe you couldn't have of before. So for instance, I've seen a number of deal announcements. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so how does, how does that all fit into Kinko's plan? moving forward and knowing that who knows when the market's going to turn and, and how do you. Yeah. Deal with it? Yeah. Those are, this, is, this has been a real advantage for us. And, and it's in part, cause we, obviously we took our, the company public, right. You're around the highs. So we ran, we raised 1.6 billion. So we've been well capitalized for this whole thing, which allows us to, you know, we acquired like eight or nine companies in the last year. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so one of the things that's done in, in therapy. So one of the challenges for us in therapeutics is because we're so general, people don't think of us 
for an air, you know, even though I actually can do a really good job finding you gene editing enzymes because I have ridiculous, you know, I'm Twist's biggest customer on DNA synthesis. We have our, we bought Gen 9s. We do a, a large amount of in-house DNA synthesis. I have huge uh, proprietary um, my, uh, metagenomic libraries to go hunting for new things. And I can test it all at high throughput. You don't think of me as a gene editing company. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, you know, and oh, you know, we've done, we have like this amazing hundred thousands member car T library test in vivo, the whole thing. Like you don't think of me as a car T company, right? We have circular RNA tech. You don't think of me as an RNA company, right? Like, 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 and so, so there's this challenge where like you have a company in your head. That's usually a company developing a therapeutic in that area when you think gene editing. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and so one of the things I've been able to do is I can start to acquire not the drugs, from companies, but these these reusable assets that are helpful in that area. So we, I guess, have like Stride Bio. They had great AAV capsules. So you might not have thought of me as an AAV company, but yeah. after I announced Stride Bio, twenty people called me. Okay, yeah. right. And so one of the reasons to do it honestly is just to let people know. Now, even prior to that, we've been working with Selecton capsules for a year and a half, but like people don't really think of us that way. So yeah. so we get assets and we get a little bit of branding, but like, again, if it's a biologics area, something that is like, you know, small molecules, we, you know, we obviously did the deal with Boehringer, but that's more of an edge case on natural products, but you know, microbiome, RNA therapy, cell therapy, gene therapy, we, we now have great assets and a lot of automation. And so the, the more assets we can pick up an environment like this, it helps us get in front of customers. That's great. So this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed it. And so I guess just to, to wrap it up, what do you believe is actually the biggest and most important issue that we're currently facing as an industry, right? Where is it that you're focusing on? You have a few things have already come up already on the conversation, but fundamentally, what is the biggest to you? Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I think if I look at like, well, I'll just narrow in on therapeutics for a minute. Um, I do think it's, a, I, I think there's a weird, um, like almost branding problem where, where, uh, you know, there's all this talk about like obviously drug pricing and things like that. Right. Um, and it's a little bit surprising, right? Because like, the, obviously the one thing that takes money out of the system ultimately is therapeutics, yeah. right? Like, you know, if you rewind the clock pre-antibiotics, most of our hospitals were filled with, it was like TB infectious disease was like, you know, and so magically we have this like huge savings on GDP and everything else and, and savings in life and all this stuff that is basically coming for free from generic antibiotics. Yeah. Okay. So, so like on the long arc of time, you know, doctors don't get cheaper, but drugs go generic and, and drugs keep you out of the hospital. Okay. Right. And so like that is magic. Right. And I think we, we need to get that that kind of energy around us, you know, in DC with the general public. And, th and this expands beyond pharmaceuticals into other areas of biotechnology. Obviously, lots of issues around GM foods and things like that. I, I think like we, ha we haven't done a great job talking with the public about this. And, and I'm actually um, chairing a National Security Commission on Emerging Biotechnology down in DC. And one of the research areas is bioliteracy. Okay. Like we have, you know, we have, we teach people English literacy. Increasingly, kids are learning computer literacy. We we need a, a bioliterate public and a bioliterate U.S. government, and and I think that uh, is a collective challenge, uh, not just for therapeutic industry, but for ag and industrial biotech as well. But that to me is is I think the root of a lot of the problems. It's a very interesting take on it, actually. To think that it's really a literacy issue. We always say that it, there's a lot of folks that say it's a branding issue, right? And that we don't do a good enough job of explaining why we're so important because we're so caught up in our own heads because we're so we're all scientists. And so we think about things from a scientific perspective, but what you're saying is there needs to be a lay capability 
of describing it to the typical American to help them really understand the benefits of what we're doing and why we probably need to go. Slightly. And it's not just the benefits. It, it is the actual technology. You know, you know, like we, we, there's a lot of pride and I get it, right? Like I did my PhD at MIT. I'm like a card carrying scientific nerd. Like, like, trust me on this, right? Like, like I, but we want to make this more accessible. Right. Like there was a time in Tom Knight, my co-founder's era of computing, where like the, the point of pride of computing was how complicated it was and how high the technology was and how much of a, a genius you had to be to use it. And they put the work in to make it accessible and to, to teach literacy in a broad population. And let me tell you, it paid off for the computer industry. Yeah. OK. And we need to do the same thing in biotech. We do not need to make it a point of pride how complicated this stuff is. We need to make it less complicated. Perfect. Well, Jason, thank you for your time. Yeah. Uh, as I said, it's been a great conversation. I enjoyed learning both, both more about Ginkgo, your thoughts on the industry, and just in general, this is a really great chat. So, so thank yeah, you. thanks for having me on, Andy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of Biotalk. We look forward to welcoming you to our next episode, where we will continue discussing areas of current interest in biotech. Please share with all your friends and colleagues so we can continue to grow the audience. This is Andy Meyerson for Biotalk, signing off.